The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. When I was a young girl, signs everywhere said, Boycott grapes. I knew it had to do with helping people who pick the grapes, and just like everybody else, I boycotted. That action led to the formation of the UFW Labor Union and a voice for farm laborers in America. Today, slaughterhouse workers, largely immigrants and people of color, are becoming ill with COVID-19 at alarming rates. Many have died. To this end, a new boycott is launching. Boycott Meat! A broad coalition called Meatless in Solidarity, started by the Iowa chapter of the League of United Latin American Citizens and including numerous vegan and animal rights organizations, is calling on caring individuals everywhere to boycott meat as a human rights issue. Obviously, we vegans know of many reasons to stay away from animal products of all kinds, but in this effort, we're hoping to awaken the general public to one very good reason to boycott meat. And you can hashtag that too. So joining me today are Joe Enrique Henry. He is the PR director for Iowa LULAC. That stands for League of United Latin American Citizens. And they actually were the ones who came up with the idea to do first Meatless May and now this huge boycott to stand in solidarity with the endangered workers in this industry. Now, I saw Mr. Henry on CNN and tracked him down. And now it's a wonderful, wonderful thing um, working with them, as are so many other organizations. My other guest in this segment, you already know her and love her, Jane Velez Mitchell, founder and editor of Jane Unchained News, which is a nonprofit digital news network reporting on animal rights, vegan health, climate change. And every year, eh, something around 18 million 
eyeballs will actually double that. 18 million humans watch Jane Unchained videos. Welcome, Jane and Joe. And Joe, let's start with you. What's the seed of this? Where did you and your LULAC um, colleagues get the idea to go out on this mission? Well, thank you, Jane. Thank you for having me on. So uh, clearly uh, we were getting phone calls from meatpacking workers, many of which are Latinos and also immigrants. Uh, back in early March, uh, very concerned about their working conditions, about uh, coworkers getting sick. So we, uh, we got on the phones, we talked with the workers, many of which here in the Midwest, finding out that they were in unsafe working conditions in these slaughterhouses here in the Midwest. We began to file charges against the company's unsafe working conditions using OSHA uh, complaints. And then clearly we were finding out that the companies were not responding to our demands to make working conditions safe for the workers. So it was at that point that we knew we had to do something to increase the pressure on these companies to do the right thing, to make sure that safe working conditions would exist. And that's where the idea of the boycott came about, to put public pressure on these companies to make sure that safe working conditions existed for the over 200,000 workers in these plants throughout the U.S. and, of course, many other workers across the world. So that's, that's where it came about. Consumer pressure is really the only way to hold these companies accountable and to make sure that they do the right thing and on top of that uh, to make sure that we have legislation that will be developed to make sure that we have more safety guidelines on a federal level. So that's how it all came about. And Jane, how did you and the many other animal rights organizations that are involved in this come on board? Well, we were watching television and seeing that these poor slaughterhouse workers were being forced to go into coronavirus-infested facilities. Many were getting sick. Uh, quite a few have died. They are also going back to their communities and then uh, infecting people in their families and their neighbors. This is outrageous, absolutely outrageous. And it's all being done under the guise that meat is an essential product. Uh, President Trump authorized the Defense Protection Act declaring these slaughterhouses critical infrastructure and meat an essential product. And we know meat is not an essential product. In fact, meat is the cause of most of the problems facing our world today. It is a leading, arguably, there are many making a powerful argument that it is the leading cause of climate change, but it is certainly, nobody disputes, a leading cause of climate change. It is a leading cause of habitat destruction, which makes it a leading, the leading cause of wildlife extinction. It's also the leading cause of human world hunger. Uh, you know, the... the the issues that we share, the concerns about people, about the environment, about animals, uh, they're all in sync. Uh, and I'm so glad because many things have not been discussed um, in the media about these unsafe working conditions, about uh, how unsafe uh, it is to eat meat in general. And then the corporate process, processing of, of meat 
and then of course the impact it has on farmers too. But uh, clearly right now we have a platform to discuss these important issues, unsafe working conditions for workers, uh, unsafe for animals, uh, the rights of animals, uh, the need for plant-based foods, uh, the need to really decentralize the way in which food is processed and how farmers can have alternative ways of providing food for Americans, for consumers in general. So really this is an opportunity, but again, it has to be based upon a boycott. That is the way that we draw attention by we we urge our fellow Americans to withdraw from eating meat. That is so very important. Of course, it is the healthy thing to do too. So uh, we have an opportunity here. Uh, I really feel, we feel in the Latino community that this will resonate, especially among young people about the issue of eating right, eating healthy. At the same time, that helps us to put pressure on these companies and also to really instill federal uh, legislation to make sure that we have safety in the workplace, not only in these plants, but any facilities where workers are at. So this is a very important time. We have legislation that's being uh, proposed in Congress. At the same time, uh, we need to discuss that. Uh, as we do our boycott. This boycott is not a short-term effort. It's going to be a long-term. It will take time. But like any great struggle, a boycott is always necessary to make sure that that struggle is achieved. So we are hopeful. We are glad to be in coalition with many different groups to bring uh, forth all the issues that are important to people and to our earth. Well, certainly, historically, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, I was reading about the anti-apartheid boycotts that actually started in the late 1950s. So that took decades, but it worked. And I remember the Cesar Chavez boycott of of grapes between 1965 and 1970. And I, I was a kid, but everywhere I would look, I would see the sign, boycott grapes, boycott grapes. To the point that mm-hmm. that today, every time I eat a grape, I have to stop and think, is it okay <laughs> now? So there, these are very, very powerful efforts. So, so what does it do? Where do we get involved? And uh, how can everybody listening help? Well, thank you. The boycott has begun. Uh, the website that we have uh, originally started out as meatlessmade.org. It has a lot of other URLs that are pointing to it, meatlessandsolidarity.org, meatlessnations.org, and a number of others. So we encourage people to go to the website. We'll have Facebook. There's already some Facebook pages up and running. We can already tell that people are really uh, jumping on board. So it has begun. We urge people to look at alternatives. We urge people to go with plant-based foods. Uh, to really bring up this issue. We have posters that can be downloaded from the website that people can take and post and take into grocery stores to demand uh, grocers to to stop purchasing corporate processed meat. So lots of different things and other messages will be uh, coming on board to uh, to give consumers so that they can demand for justice of workers and animals at the same time. So, Jane, uh, what are you doing and what are you telling your many, many followers about this effort? 
I am telling everybody, jump on board with Boycott Meat because we can create a very powerful coalition. I love the prospect of working with LULAC. This makes me so very excited as a Latina myself. Uh, it was my mother, who was born in Vieques, Puerto Rico, who had a pig companion when she was a child, and she came home from school, and her pig, her friend, had been slaughtered for meat, and she literally fainted. She was maybe eight or nine years old. She woke up and said, I will never touch uh, an animal product again. Now I know where it comes from. And she was the one who raised me and my dad, who was Irish, and who switched from being a big meat eater when he met my mother. We were we thought we were vegetarian, but we were in a pescatarian household. But suffice it to say that I was inspired by my mom. And uh, she taught me that you know, animal products don't fall from trees, that these were individual living beings who had every much a right to live as I do and that they're not there as items. And one of the things that I've learned studying this issue is that we're all being factory farmed. It's not just the animals, it's the consumers too. Uh, they are forcing food that is very, very heavy in fat, sugar, and salt upon people. That's primarily meat and dairy in a fast food diet. Then they get heart disease, they get cancer, they get erectile dysfunction, they get high cholesterol, then they can sell them pills the pharmaceutical industry, just, just cholesterol-lowering drugs are a multi-multi-billion dollar industry. So uh, there are so many reasons for all of us to get together and form a united coalition. Obviously, uh, we see uprisings against racism in our country today, massive protests with thousands and thousands of people. Dietary racism is a huge problem that very few people talk about. They are forcing kids in public school, primarily children of color, to eat food that they are literally allergic to, food that is horrible for them, food that's giving them obesity and diabetes. So uh, when you look at it from that perspective, that's dietary racism. Let's take a look at where these slaughterhouses and these factory farms are located. There's no slaughterhouses or factory farms on Park Avenue or in Beverly Hills. They are almost all exclusively in low-income communities of color. And there have been documentaries that have shown that they are literally spraying feces of factory farm animals onto the yards of neighboring communities in the South African-American communities who have said they can't even walk out their front door. They can't even function in their homes because the stench is so overpowering. Then there's the pollution aspect. Where do you think all the feces and all the blood and all the urine goes? It goes into our waterways. Last time I was in Fort Myers, Florida, which was my first job as a reporter, we couldn't go to the beach because there was a green algae tide. The factory farm runoff had gone down the Caloosahatchee River and was making it unbearable to get into the water. So is that good for business? We are destroying our planet and the key destructive element is animal agriculture. It is why we are burning down the Amazon. Uh, 20, 20 sizes of Manhattan have been destroyed in the Amazon since the first of the year. Enough acreage that it would amount to Manhattan 20 times over, and that is primarily to create cattle grazing land. So anytime somebody eats uh, a piece of meat or a piece of dairy, they are contributing to climate change, they are contributing to habitat destruction. 
We are running out of time. We are racing towards extinction. We have to end this incredibly destructive industry soon, or literally we could get to a point that uh, we are facing a crisis that will eclipse all others, where life will be essentially uninhabitable for humans on this planet. If it gets to be 140, 145 degrees on a regular basis because of climate change, nothing can happen. And that's already starting to happen in parts of India and other parts of the world. Not only that, you look at the immigration crisis. One of the things that very few people talk about is these many of these people who have immigrated north from uh, Latin America were subsistence farmers, generation after generation, taking care of their own land, subsiding and living off their land. <laughs> you know what I mean. Subsisting. They, We've got subsisting, you, Jane. Subsisting. Subsisting off their lands. And now because of climate change, the uh, temperature is not tempered anymore. So it goes from extreme heat to extreme wind to extreme rain. And they cannot till their land. They cannot survive on their land. So they're all flooding north, coming into the cities. All of this is due to animal agriculture. We are also putting small farmers out of business. Um, the small farmers in America are being told, get bigger, get out. So when we talk about farmers, because the first thing people say is, well, uh, you know, you're going to put people out of work. A, we can transition people who are working in slaughterhouses and factory farms to uh, working in agriculture that is plant-based agriculture. Secondly, the so-called farmers are actually people who live in Manhattan on Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue who have never set foot in an actual farm. These are basically, there's a monopoly. There's only like five meat companies left. Two of them are not even American-owned. One's Chinese and one is Brazilian. And these are people who are not farmers. They they have turned it into factory operations where the so-called farmers are really indentured servants who are put in these terrible debts and the overlords are these meat processors. So it's a very unfair system that is essentially enslaving everybody. We need to stand up and revolt against it. We need to boycott meat. Well, amen and, and keep preaching. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very, very powerful. So for those of you out there who are thinking, well, what can I do? You can be part of this. Now, I know that uh, many of you are already vegan or, or vegetarian, and so you're already boycotting meat. But if you are a part of an organization, if your organization would like to join the coalition, then you can just be in touch with LULAC Iowa and you can become part of that. Some of the organizations that you've heard of that, that are part of this already include Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, Mercy for Animals, PETA, Animal Save Movement, the Rancher Advocacy Program, a former cattle rancher Renee King Sonnen and her husband have this uh, outreach to people who have been raising cattle for their living and often for generations and they're just not sure what to do instead and so she's there to help them she's part of the coalition so uh joe how do people find you and uh become part of this well thank you jane i mean thank you victoria it's so easy to find us you can uh easily go to meatlessmay.org also meatlessnations.org uh, you can find it through lulacguiwa.org. Reach out to us. We will we will show you what needs to be done. 
we urge people again to join the boycott. The boycott has begun now. So uh, please uh, encourage your friends and family members, coworkers to not eat meat. It's the healthy thing to do. It helps workers, helps animals, helps farmers. So uh, please reach out to us, and we will be providing you with lots of information. Uh, Needless in Solidarity is the other uh, Facebook page that people can reach out to us. Thank you very much, Victoria. Yeah, and and I think when you go to Meatless and Solidarity, it, it's an event, but it's an ongoing event <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, forever. So uh, that's cool. So um, Jane, I'm going to get into a little bit of controversial area here. There was some pushback from uh, some of the uh, Spanish-speaking animal rights activists first, and I'm sure we'll get some from English-speaking activists as well. Why are you helping these workers? These are the workers who kill the animals. So can you just get that clear for anybody who may be thinking that? Well, these are overwhelmingly immigrants who have little to no choice as to what job they are going to take. Now, even Kim Cordova, who represents 3,000 union workers, says nobody wants to be a slaughterhouse worker. Nobody goes to college and majors in slaughtering animals. So these folks are also victims. And the hypocrisy of Americans, native-born Americans, uh, who very few are actually working in these slaughterhouses, and any of them who are, are predominantly um, Latino and African-American, but for other Americans to say, oh, I love animals, and then hire somebody else to do their killing for them, um, it's it's hypocrisy. Uh, these folks get all sorts of issues. They suffer depression. They suffer carpal tunnel syndrome. They c- suffer drug addiction and alcoholism at higher rates. Uh, imagine, imagine having to go in and kill for eight hours a day um, five days a week, 52 weeks a year, what that would do psychologically. While the rest of us are running around saying we're animal lovers and buying treats for our pets and patting ourselves on the back. You know, I see these people, uh, there's a neighbor of mine who has do all things with love. And, you know, I feel like going up to her and I say, well, so you must be vegan, right? You can't be eating animals. If you're eating animals, there's tremendous torture. I mean, this is a morally bankrupt system from start to finish. Let's just take a look at it from a feminist angle. None of these animals are making love on these factory farms. They are all raped into existence. The industry term is rape rack, right there. What would Jesus say to that? What would Jesus say to all these animals being raped with a fist, okay? And then when their babies are born, they are taken from them. They are ripped from them. Why? So we can steal the breast milk of another species not designed for us? Okay? So you see videos of the mother cows mourning and grieving as their babies are ripped from them. They have no need for the boys. They either shoot the boys, leave them on a dead pile, or put them in veal crates. And the babies, the the girls, uh, eventually replaced replace their mothers who were sent off to turn to be turned into cheap hamburger after a couple of years when a cow in nature should live to 25 years. And I know this is a religious channel, and I can tell you that having uh, read an incredible book about the historical account of the life of Jesus Christ, 
The most historically documented aspect of Jesus's life is that he went to the temple in Jerusalem and he, yes, argued with the money changers, but he also chased out the animals destined for sacrifice. Today, Jesus Christ would be considered a radical animal rights activist. That is today called open rescue, where people go into these slaughterhouses and these factory farms and they take out the animals. Okay, this factory farming, industrialized, brutal rape, torture, and murder of billions, 70 billion land animals, not including fish, every year is morally reprehensible. It is unchristian. It is just plain wrong, and it has to end. Oh, thank you, Jane. Uh, this is this is such a, a powerful, powerful um, undertaking that that we're all involved in, and and uh, I am part of this as well. The alumni of of Main Street Vegan Academy are offering their services free of charge to give that direct help to people who want to go meatless, who want to be part of the boycott, but just don't know, well, when I don't have uh, pasta, what do I eat? So um, we'll be helping with all that kind of thing. So just in our last minute here, Joe, tell us the vision. What do you want to see from this? Let's just say one year from now, and then I know we fully intend to keep on going. Thank you, Victoria. So clearly we need federal legislation. We need legislation that protects workers uh, where the Occupational and Safe and Health Administration has mandatory rules, which right now are just recommended for how to make sure that we have safe working conditions, especially during this pandemic. So having that legislation in place is very important. There's other legislation that's being drafted by Cory Booker and others, uh, a number of things called the Prime Act, which would allow the removal of vertical integration of the uh, food processing industry. So a number of things on a federal level, then of course on a state level, where we need to really ramp up legislation to make sure that workers have right, rights, that they have safety in the workplace. But other things too, that this is really bringing out is the need for healthcare for all. So that is something that, of course, uh, is going to be with your vote. Ten seconds, uh, Joe. November. <laughs> okay. okay. But, and uh, and, and on things. the human level, we can all do boycott meat. We can share it online. Hashtag boycott meat. Everybody stay with us for Dr. Michael Greger. Guess what? We're going to survive this pandemic and whatever comes down the pike. Stay with us. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. I know that you love Dr. Michael Greger. I know that you read How Not to Die. I know that you tune into nutritionfacts.org and get your fabulous minute or so of wonderful nutrition information straight from the science every single day. And it is my great pleasure to welcome back uh, Dr. Michael Greger, a founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He was an expert witness in the defense of Oprah Winfrey in the infamous uh, meat defamation trial uh, back in the 1990s. He is a graduate of the Cornell University School of Agriculture and Tufts University School of Medicine. And he has a brand new book, and it's called How to Survive a Pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Michael Greger. So glad to be back. <laughs> well, it hasn't been long. You are really prolific. You you just came out with uh, How Not to Diet uh, not long ago. And now you're tackling something that has certainly been um, front and center for the past several months. How did we get into this COVID situation? Oh, well, over the last few decades, hundreds of human pathogens have emerged at a rate unprecedented in human history. So wait a second, emerged from where? Well, mostly from animals. Uh, the AIDS virus is blamed on the butchering of primates and the bushmeat trade in Africa. Uh, mad cow disease was because we turned cows into carnivores and cannibals. SARS and COVID-19 have been traced back to the exotic wild animal trade. But our last pandemic, swine flu in 2009, arose now from some backwater wet market in Asia, but was largely made in the USA on pig operations here in the United States. Thankfully, swine flu only killed about a half million people, but the next time we might not be so lucky. And what is the next time? What is the thing that you're really afraid of and a lot of other public health officials are worrying about too? Well, as devastating as COVID-19 has been, it may just be a dress rehearsal for an even greater threat waiting in the wings of chickens. According to the CDC, the leading candidate for the next pandemic is a bird flu virus known as H7N9, which is 100 times deadlier than COVID-19. Instead of one in 250 cases dying, H7N9 has killed 40% of the people in fact. The last time a bird flu virus jumped directly to humans and caused a pandemic, it triggered the deadliest plague in human history, the 1918 pandemic, which killed 50 million people. I mean, that had a 2% death rate. What if we had a pandemic infecting billions where death was closer to a flip of a coin? But the good news is that we have something we can do about it, just as eliminating the exotic animal trade and live animal markets may go a long way towards preventing the next coronavirus pandemic. Reforming the way we raise domestic animals for food may help forestall the next killer flu. So what needs to happen? Well, you know, when we overcrowd 
thousands of animals, these cramped, filthy football field-sized sheds to lie, you know, beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist. It's just a breeding ground for disease. The sheer number of animals, the overcrowding, the stress crippling their immune systems, the ammonia from the decomposing waste burning their lungs, the lack of fresh air, lack of sunlight, and put all these factors together. What you really have is a perfect storm environment for the emergence and spread of these so-called super strains of influenza. That's why the, the American Public Health Association called for a moratorium on factory farming. Uh, you know, so, you know, maybe COVID-19 is kind of the dry run we needed, the fire drill to wake us from our complacency to reform the food system before it's too late. Uh, the bottom line is that it's not worth risking the lives of millions of people for the sake of cheaper chicken. Excuse me. So is a moratorium on factory farming even possible given the human population and the way that people like to eat chicken? Well, that's why we need to accelerate the movement towards plant-based milks, plant-based meats, plant-based egg products. I mean, think of what's happened in the dairy case lately, right? Major U.S. dairies declaring bankruptcy. Why? Because of this constellation of new consumer choices um, uh, and, uh, and you know, the, the, the market hath spoken and you're seeing the same kind of innovation in, uh, in, in the, the meat case as well. Major meat producers, Tyson, Purdue. Smithfield, Hormel, Cargill have been have been you know starting to kind of innovate us out of this precarious situation by making these plant-based meat alternatives, um, and so <clears throat> um, uh, you know they may these processed products may not be the healthiest from a human health standpoint, from the from a from a chronic disease standpoint, but from a pandemic risk standpoint, zero risk. Wonderful. So, Dr. Gregor, you know that even within the vegan movement, there have been people putting forth what would be called conspiracy theories and, and saying, well, you know, maybe it didn't start in a wet market. Maybe it started in some other way. Maybe somebody started it intentionally. Can you explain to me why anybody who wants to create a vegan world would go down that path? You know, it's interesting. You know, I think I quipped somewhat unfairly on some interview that, you know, just because you eat broccoli doesn't mean you're not an idiot, something like that. <laughs> I mean, you know, just like, just because they, you know, but, you know, but, but to take a step back, I mean, uh, you know, those of us in the evidence-based nutrition movement realize that, 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 that two things can be true, that there can be this overwhelming mountain of scientific evidence showing one thing, but that's the that's uh, but uh, the government, the educational system, the entire society is uh, off in some other direction. And so and, and so uh, so you can know the truth and none of your neighbors do. You know, I mean, and so and so we kind of live in this situation where, you know, having that dissonance. Wait a second. Why are the, you the only one that's saying this? Um, you know, invites similar kind of thinking, some of which um, uh, can be, you know, fringy, conspiratorial, and really the, the antithesis of evidence. I mean, the whole point is the reason that we feel differently about our diet than everyone else is because we're on the side of science. Um, and so, you know, just because we're only right when everyone else is wrong because the science says we're right when everyone else is wrong. But 
you just can't listen to some rando on the internet and say, oh, I, they, they must be right, even though everyone else is wrong. You always have to come back to the science, always have to come back to what is the best available balance of evidence. And that very clearly, um, uh, you know, disabuses one of these crazy notions out there. You should not listen to me. You should not listen to any kind of guru or I, you need to say, what's the science, right? You, you, you show you, no one was born with this information. So you have to demand what's your source? Where'd you get this from? I want to read the original source yourself. Share us the original source. And then you can look at it and see where it came from. You should not just trust people blindly when it comes to things as life and death as, you know, a healthy diet or in this case, um, an infectious disease that's already um, wiped out 100,000 Americans. And uh, we are, uh, you know, uh, looking at uh, within, you know, a few days, you know, millions of cases here um, and around the world. Um, I mean, I think people look at the news these days and think that the, uh, the, the pandemic is going away. But, you know, yesterday the WHO uh, released the highest um, uh, daily incidence, period, since the beginning of the pandemic. Just because it's declining here in North America and Europe doesn't mean it's not skyrocketing in South America, rising in in Africa. Um, we're going to have this uh, virus for a while, and uh, we need to, you know, be smart about it and listen um, uh, and, and and see what the science says. Demand um, evidence, um, and uh, and so that's that's what I've always tried to do in the lifestyle medicine realm. And so I'm, I'm so glad I was able to translate that um, into the infectious disease realm uh, as well with my new book, How to Survive a Pandemic. Which is a fabulous book, by the way. I'm about a third of the way through it, and, and I highly, highly recommend it. So uh, we all know you as a lifestyle medicine physician. We know you for your expertise in the realm of, of nutrition. And for years, when I came into this movement originally, we said things like, well, people used to have to worry about infectious diseases, and mm -hmm. now we're only looking at degenerative diseases, lifestyle diseases. Well, it's sure looking now like we have both. What do we do? Yeah, no, in fact, so there's three major so-called epidemiological transitions, three major ages of human disease. And the first dates back about 10,000 years ago, um, uh, with the emergence of the first major um, human infectious diseases with the domestication of animals. Um, so, for example, tuberculosis is thought to have been acquired through the domestication of goats. Measles also jumped from goats or sheep. Smallpox seems to have been a result of camel domestication. We domesticated pigs and got whooping cough, chickens and got typhoid fever, and ducks and got influenza. Leprosy came from water buffalo, the cold virus from cattle or horses. I mean, how often did wild horses have the opportunity to sneeze in the humanity's face before they were you know, broken and bridled? Right Before then, the common cold was presumably only common to them. Um, and then, and so that's where we got all our major diseases from the domestication of animals. But of course, that was only um, in one hemisphere. Here in the Americas, the Ice Age wiped out um, American camels. And so there's no smallpox. We had buffalo, but no domesticated buffalo. So we had no measles. That's why when the Europeans landed and up to 90% of native peoples in this hemisphere were killed off, 
um, in large part by the plagues bought from the Europeans. You say, wait a second, why didn't you know American plagues wipe out the Europeans? There were no plagues here because we didn't have the um, livestock domestication. So that was the first phase. Um, and uh, the second phase was the Industrial Revolution when we started getting these uh, chronic diseases um, uh, such as, you know, rickets from inadequate uh, sunlight in some of these uh, crowded, uh, smoggy cities, um, and then started creeping up heart disease, these lifestyle diseases, type 2 diabetes, obesity. Um, and that's what we've been, uh, and that's what we've been dealing with for the better part of the century. But then just in the last few decades, um, uh, we've, uh, with this, 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 this third epidemiological age, this third age of human disease, and that is these emerging diseases, again, most of which come from animals. So it's ironic that every single stage of human disease, the original infectious diseases, these lifestyle diseases also linked, um, to our consumption, linked to animal agriculture and overconsumption of animal products. And now this third age. Um, which also comes down to animal agriculture and deforestation, other ways that we're mucking with the human-animal interface. And so it all says, so, you know, how we treat animals can have global public health implications. And you say that from the science, and I say it from karma. <laughs> and ah! I agree. So, so what do we do? Your book is called How to Survive a Pandemic. So how do we survive this one and whatever is coming down the pike? Well, so certainly I cover everything, you know, there is to, to know to protect ourselves and our families from the coronavirus, you know, optimal respiratory and hand hygiene, surface disinfection, masks, how to make your own hand sanitizer, on and on. But, you know, the best way to survive a pandemic is to prevent it in the first place. So the bulk of the book really centers around tracing the origins of the COVID coronavirus and what we can do to prevent even greater infectious disease threats in the future. You know, in this age of emerging diseases, there are now billions of feathered and curly-tailed test tubes for viruses to incubate and mutate within billions more spins at pandemic roulette. We may be one bushmeat meal away from the next HIV, one pangolin plate away from the next killer coronavirus, and one factory farm away from the next deadly flu. Along with human culpability, though, comes hope. If changes in human behavior can cause new plagues, well, then changes in human behavior may prevent them in the future. So what if we're eating plant-based and doing pretty well and feel like we're healthy? Do we really have better immunity than somebody else? Because if you don't have antibodies to something because it's brand new, how much can you count on just from your own immune system? Well, I mean, it's critical to consider the underlying risk factors for COVID-19 severity and death. I mean, who gets sick? Who doesn't get sick? Who gets, who gets put on a ventilator, who doesn't? Who dies from this disease and who doesn't? Obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, type two diabetes, all of which can be controlled or even reversed with a healthy enough plant-based diet and lifestyle. You know, excess body fat alone, even independent of diabetes. Um, so, uh, and it's not obesity, even just being overweight puts you at significantly higher risk. Having a body mass index, a BMI of 28 or more, which is about 175 pounds at the average height of five foot six, um, appears uh, to put you at nearly six times the odds of suffering a severe COVID-19 course. And in the United States, the average BMI exceeds 29. So even being skinnier than the average American puts you at so much excess body fat that uh, can still uh, put you at risk. So this is the time to take care of yourself. This is the time 
to get sufficient sleep, keep active. You know, if you want to start a meditation practice or start a, a, a you know, uh, an exercise program, reducing stress, staying connected, albeit remotely to friends and family, and eating a healthy diet centered around whole plant foods. This take this opportunity to really clean up your diet and lifestyle, protecting you not only against chronic disease threats down the road, but right now from the current infectious disease threat. Well, that is really good news. Now, how about people who are over 65? And we are told that we're at risk, even if we're healthy. Is that because almost nobody over 65 is healthy? Or is can age just in and of itself, no other underlying conditions, conditions be a risk? That's a fantastic question. And indeed, you know, as you kind of mentioned, you know, most adults over the age of 50 here in the U.S. suffer from one of these comorbidities. They either, most people, over 50% of those over 50 have heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, or cancer. Isn't that amazing? That's, um, that's amazing. even talking, not talking about obesity. I mean, obviously, mo you know, most Americans are overweight. Um, but even without that, so how much of this age distribution has to do with pre-existing conditions and how much has to do, really do with age? And it turns out that there really does seem to be a significant age component, even among those that are healthy. So those over the age 65, even with no underlying, known underlying health conditions, are still three times the odds of, of requiring um, ICU care and dying. Um, from from this disease. So even if you are the picture of health, um, you are who we need to protect right now. Um, uh, uh, you know, that's why we need to be sticking to the CDC reopening criteria, protecting the most vulnerable. And so look, even if you're young and healthy right now, who are you coming home to? Are you going to see your grandparents? I mean, this is, you know, that's why I'm, I, you know, I see so many people out in the streets, which is just a beautiful sign of solidarity. And I'm not so worried so much about them. They're out in the fresh air, um, even if they're a little too crowded together. But who are they going home to? And particularly um, these comorbidities um, disproportionately strike communities of color. And so I'm, 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 I'm worried that people aren't going to uh, um, to take the necessary precautions. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I mean, I, so whatever's happened to your state right now, um, uh, if there is continued community transmission, those who are over the age 60, over the age 70, um, really need to be careful um, and social distance as much as possible until herd immunity is achieved, either through mass infection or better through mass vaccination. But we should not expect, even under the best of circumstances, to have a vaccine available for the general population until at the earliest second half of next year. Well... When it's all said and done, I guess my hair will be as long as Lady Godiva, but mm. I will be fit <laughs> and we'll learn a lot <laughs> of things through this, talking to amazing people like you. So um, tell us, Dr. Greger, in your research for this book, and I know that this was a long time coming. I mean, you wrote a book about avian flu 10 years ago, but what have you learned? What surprised you? Oh, my God, so much interesting stuff. Well, first of all, I mean, we were always expecting this is going to be another flu pandemic. Um, so most pandemics have indeed, uh, all respiratory um, pandemics to date have been influenza. And so that was really, and so, you know, ironically, when I first heard about it, 
Um, and you know, I'm 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 part of the emerging infectious disease community. We see all sorts of uh, emergencies early on before anybody else. But you never know what's gonna what's gonna you know uh, grow and what's just gonna wither away. And so when I saw, um, uh, you know, back in February that there were these um, cases of uh, of a coronavirus infection, I, in my influenza snobbishness. Um, thinking, oh, there's going to be like SARS and MERS, these other uh, deadly coronavirus outbreaks, thousands of people infected, maybe hundreds dying, but that's it. Little did I know it would, um, we could have a coronavirus, which has that same quality of the flu and that people will become contagious before showing symptoms. So days after becoming infected, you can look perfectly fine, feel perfectly fine, but be exhaling virus with every breath. That's why these social distancing measures have been necessary, because without mass testing, you don't know who's infected, who's not. So you just have to try to keep everyone apart from everyone else. Mm. So, wow, you know a lot. So let's let's move into uh, a really good story. I mentioned in the introduction that you were an expert uh, witness in the defense of Oprah Winfrey. You know, some people weren't around back then and ah. don't know that she got sued. Tell us that story. Oh my God! Yeah, she got sued under the uh, food disparagement uh, law. So at the time, twenty-one states had law. Um, which was made it illegal to make unfounded comments against perishable food items. And indeed, so Oprah Winfrey had uh, this, uh, this uh, multi-generational cattle rancher on by the name of Howard Lyman, who disclosed that the, one of the dirty little secrets of the livestock industry is that uh, they, they feed the remains of cattle, pigs, and sheep back to cattle, pigs, and sheep. They, the rendering industry considers themselves the original recyclers. Um, and so basically turning livestock into carnivores and cannibals. Um, and uh, when Oprah heard this, she said, you know, she'd never have a burger again. And uh, cattle futures uh, tumbled on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Texas cattle rancher lost a lot of money. And so sued Oprah under this law, which was uh, there in Texas, um, saying, look, you can't make unfounded comments against perishable food items and took her to court, dragged on. Little do people know, even people that were around at the time, eight years of appeals. Uh, the case didn't end for eight years. Drag and so um, uh, in a very narrow sense, Oprah won. Um, in a legal sense, in a judicial sense, she won, and um, on First Amendment grounds as well, which is the way, uh, which is nice to, to 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 set a precedent. But actually, the opposite precedent was set in that if one of the richest human beings in the world, with a national audience, could get dragged through the courts in one of the you know most miserable experiences of her life, well, then if you're just Joe Schmo on some little local TV station, you're going to shut your trap when it comes to talking about bovine growth hormone or talking about anything that has to do with the livestock industry because so it's basically silencing their critics just from the intimidation of having to be dragged through. So yes, in a sense, she did win, um, and I played a very small role, just uh, arguing that these were indeed founded comments. There's nothing on the show that wasn't that wasn't true. Um, but uh, but in a, in a, in another sense, um, uh, it, uh, it 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 shut down um, uh, discussion and debate, and led to self censorship among journalists who uh, you know didn't have uh, you know the you know couldn't just arm up with a cadre of lawyers as easily as Oprah was able to. So you're a, a pretty young guy. How did they pick you? 
Um, well, um, I, at the time, was uh, writing about uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy since uh, back, ooh, back in 1996, um, was, uh, was writing about it. And, uh, um, and so I was called as an expert witness, uh, just given my, uh, I had been writing about the public health implications of this disease and similar uh, so-called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, these prion diseases. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, there, there were, there's, I mean, there were many people talking about this over in Europe. Um, but in the U S there, 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 the, the, there was just a handful of experts. And so, uh, I was the one that Howard, uh, Lyman knew called me up and, uh, yeah, I got the call from Chip Bagcock, her, uh, her personal attorney and uh, was able to, um, send some, uh, send some uh, supporting evidence to the judge. You and Dr. Phil made famous by a lawsuit. <laughs> so uh, in our just final minute, is there any condition in which humans do need to consume the flesh of animals? Ah, uh, nothing. There's absolutely nothing. There's no uh, 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 necessity um, whatsoever. Um, uh, and in fact, you know, there's this kind of, uh, this, this so-called personalized nutrition, people trying to sell people supplements and all sorts of crazy diets based on, you know, oh, other people need to eat this way, but you are special. You need to eat some way based on some silly test or something, but no, we're the same species and we as a species, you know, it's like all koalas, they eat eucalyptus, all panda bears, they eat they get bamboo. Well, all humans thrive best on diets centered around whole healthy plant foods, real food that grows from the ground. These are our healthiest choices. And nobody knows that better than Dr. Michael Greger. You can find him daily at nutritionfacts.org. Uh, my website is mainstreetvegan.net, where our Main Street Vegan Academy that trains and certifies vegan lifestyle coaches and educators is now on Zoom as well as in person in New York City. So do check that out. And also remember, boycott meat. That's the hashtag. Let's do it. Let's hashtag it. Let's tell everybody we know about it. You just heard from Dr. Michael Greger, author of How Not to Die, the How Not to Die cookbook, How Not to Diet, and How to Survive a Pandemic, that there is no reason whatsoever, anytime, anywhere, to eat the flesh of another being. And we're going to throw the eggs and the milk in there too and say, guess what? We have a wonderful way to live as our country and our planet goes forward with a higher consciousness, then we're just going to eat with a higher consciousness too. Thanks so much to all my guests today. Thanks to Unity Online Radio. And thank you, the listener. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. 
Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.